August 12 to 18 of Morning and Evening Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Morning and Evening Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, August 12. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 97 1. Causes for disquietude there are none so long as this blessed sentence is true. On earth the Lord's power as readily controls the rage of the wicked as the rage of the sea. His love as easily refreshes the poor with mercy as the earth with showers. Majesty gleams in flashes of fire amid the tempest's horrors, and the glory of the Lord is seen in its grandeur in the fall of empires and the crash of thrones. In all our conflicts and tribulations we may behold the hand of the divine King. God is God, He sees and hears all our troubles, all our tears. Soul, forget not, mid thy pains, God o'er all for ever reigns. In hell, evil spirits own with misery His undoubted supremacy. When permitted to roam abroad, it is with a chain at their heel. The bit is in the mouth of behemoth, and the hook in the jaws of Leviathan. Death's darts are under the Lord's lock, and the grave's prisons have divine power as their warder. The terrible vengeance of the judge of all the earth makes fiends cower down and tremble, even as dogs in the kennel fear the hunter's whip. Fear not death, nor Satan's thrusts, God defends who in him trusts. Soul, remember in thy pains, God o'er all for ever reigns. In heaven none doubt the sovereignty of the King Eternal, but all fall on their faces to do him homage. Angels are his courtiers, the redeemed his favorites, and all delight to serve him day and night. May we soon reach the city of the great King. For this life's long night of sadness he will give us peace and gladness. Soul, remember in thy pains, God or all forever reigns. Evening, August 12. The bow shall be seen in the cloud. Genesis 9.14. The rainbow, the symbol of the covenant with Noah, is typical of our Lord Jesus, who is the Lord's witness to the people. When may we expect to see the token of the covenant? The rainbow is only to be seen painted upon a cloud. When the sinner's conscience is dark with clouds, when he remembers his past sin, and mourneth and lamenteth before God, Jesus Christ is revealed to him as the covenant rainbow, displaying all the glorious hues of the divine character, and betokening peace. To the believer, when his trials and temptations surround him, it is sweet to behold the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, to see him bleeding, living, rising, and pleading for us. God's rainbow is hung over the cloud of our sins, our sorrows and our woes, to prophesy deliverance. Nor does a cloud alone give a rainbow, there must be the crystal drops to reflect the light of the sun. So our sorrows must not only threaten, but they must really fall upon us. There had been no Christ for us if the vengeance of God had been merely a threatening cloud. Punishment must fall in terrible drops upon the surety. Until there is a real anguish in the sinner's conscience, there is no Christ for him. 
until the chastisement which he feels becomes grievous, he cannot see Jesus. But there must also be a sun, for clouds and drops of rain make not rainbows unless the sun shineth. Beloved, our God, who is the sun to us, always shines, but we do not always see him. Clouds hide his face. But no matter what drops may be falling, or what clouds may be threatening, if he does but shine, there will be a rainbow at once. It is said that when we see the rainbow, the shower is over. Certain it is that when Christ comes, our troubles remove. When we behold Jesus, our sins vanish, and our doubts and fears subside. When Jesus walks the waters of the sea, how profound the calm! Morning, August 13. The cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. Psalm 104, 16. Lebanon's cedars are emblematic of the Christian, in that they owe their planting entirely to the Lord. This is quite true of every child of God. He is not man-planted, nor self-planted, but God-planted. The mysterious hand of the Divine Spirit dropped the living seed into a heart which he had himself prepared for its reception. Every true heir of heaven owns the great husbandman as his planter. Moreover, the cedars of Lebanon are not dependent upon man for their watering. They stand on the lofty rock, unmoistened by human irrigation, and yet our Heavenly Father supplieth them. Thus it is with the Christian who has learned to live by faith. He is independent of man, even in temporal things, for his continued maintenance he looks to the Lord his God, and to him alone. The dew of heaven is his portion, and the God of heaven is his fountain. Again, the cedars of Lebanon are not protected by any mortal power. They owe nothing to man for their preservation from stormy wind and tempest. They are God's trees, kept and preserved by Him, and by Him alone. It is precisely the same with the Christian. He is not a hot-house plant, sheltered from temptation. He stands in the most exposed position. He has no shelter, no protection, except this, that the broad wings of the eternal God always cover the cedars which He Himself has planted. Like cedars, believers are full of sap, having vitality enough to be ever green, even amid winter's snows. Lastly, the flourishing and majestic condition of the cedar is to the praise of God only. The Lord, even the Lord alone, hath been everything unto the cedars, and, therefore, David sweetly puts it in one of his psalms, Praise ye the Lord, fruitful trees, and all cedars. In the believer there is nothing that can magnify man, he is planted, nourished, and protected by the Lord's own hand, and to him let all glory be ascribed. Evening, August 13. And I will remember my covenant. Genesis 9.15 Mark the form of the promise. God does not say, And when ye shall look upon the bow, and ye shall remember my covenant, then will I not destroy the earth but it is gloriously put, not upon our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite and immutable. The bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant. 
Oh, it is not my remembering God, it is God's remembering me, which is the ground of my safety. It is not my laying hold of His covenant, but His covenant's laying hold on me. Glory be to God, the whole of the bulwarks of salvation are secured by divine power, and even the minor towers, which we may imagine might have been left to man, are guarded by almighty strength. Even the remembrance of the covenant is not left to our memories, for we might forget, but our Lord cannot forget the saints whom he has graven on the palms of his hands. It is with us as with Israel in Egypt. The blood was upon the lintel and the two side-posts, but the Lord did not say, When you see the blood, I will pass over you, but when I see the blood, I will pass over you. My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace, but it is God's looking to Jesus which secures my salvation and that of all his elect, since it is impossible for our God to look at Christ, our bleeding surety, and then to be angry with us for sins already punished in him. No, it is not left with us even to be saved by remembering the covenant. There is no Lindsay Woolsey here, not a single thread of the creature mars the fabric. It is not of man, neither by man, but of the Lord alone. We should remember the covenant, and we shall do it, through divine grace. But the hinge of our safety does not hang there. It is God's remembering us, not our remembering Him. And hence the covenant is an everlasting covenant. Morning, August 14 Thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. Psalm 92.4. Do you believe that your sins are forgiven, and that Christ has made a full atonement for them? Then what a joyful Christian you ought to be! How you should live above the common trials and troubles of the world! Since sin is forgiven, can it matter what happens to you now? Luther said, Smite, Lord, smite, for my sin is forgiven. If thou hast but forgiven me, smite as hard as thou wilt and in a similar spirit you may say, Send sickness, poverty, losses, crosses, persecution, what thou wilt. Thou hast forgiven me, and my soul is glad. Christian, if thou art thus saved, whilst thou art glad, be grateful and loving. Cling to that cross which took thy sin away. Serve thou him who served thee. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let not your zeal evaporate in some little ebullition of song. Show your love in expressive tokens. Love the brethren of him who loved you. If there be a Mephibosheth anywhere who is lame or halt, help him for Jonathan's sake. If there be a poor tried believer, weep with him and bear his cross for the sake of him who wept for thee and carried thy sins. Since thou art thus forgiven freely for Christ's sake, go and tell to others the joyful news of pardoning mercy. Be not contented with this unspeakable blessing for thyself alone, but publish abroad the story of the cross. Holy gladness and holy boldness will make you a good preacher, and all the world will be a pulpit for you to preach in. Cheerful holiness is the most forcible of sermons, but the Lord must give it you. Seek it this morning before you go into the world. 
when it is the Lord's work in which we rejoice, we need not be afraid of being too glad. Evening, August 14. I know their sorrows. Exodus 3.7. The child is cheered as he sings, This my father knows and shall not we be comforted as we discern that our dear friend and tender soul husband knows all about us? 1. He is the physician, and if he knows all, there is no need that the patient should know. Hush, thou silly fluttering heart, prying, peeping, and suspecting! What thou knowest not now, thou shalt know hereafter, and meanwhile Jesus, the beloved physician, knows thy soul in adversities." Why need the patient analyze all the medicine or estimate all the symptoms? This is the physician's work, not mine. It is my business to trust, and his to prescribe. If he shall write his prescription in uncouth characters which I cannot read, I will not be uneasy on that account, but rely upon his unfailing skill to make all plain in the result, however mysterious in the working. 2. He is the master, and his knowledge is to serve us instead of our own. We are to obey, not to judge. The servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Shall the architect explain his plans to every hodman on the works? If he knows his own intent, is it not enough? The vessel on the wheel cannot guess to what pattern it shall be conformed, but if the potter understands his art, what matters the ignorance of the clay? My Lord must not be cross-questioned any more by one so ignorant as I am. 3. He is the head. All understanding centers there. What judgment has the arm? What comprehension has the foot? All the power to know lies in the head. Why should the member have a brain of its own when the head fulfills for it every intellectual office? Here, then, must the believer rest his comfort in sickness, that not he himself can see the end, but that Jesus knows all. Sweet Lord, be thou for ever eye and soul and head for us, and let us be content to know only what thou choosest to reveal. Morning, August 15. Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide. Genesis 24:63. Very admirable was his occupation. If those who spend so many hours in idle company, light reading, and useless pastimes could learn wisdom, they would find more profitable society and more interesting engagements in meditation than in the vanities which have now such charms for them. We should all know more, live nearer to God, and grow in grace, if we were more alone. Meditation chews the cud and extracts the real nutriment from the mental food gathered elsewhere. When Jesus is the theme, meditation is sweet indeed. Isaac found Rebecca while engaged in private musings. Many others have found their best beloved there. Very admirable was the choice of place. In the field we have a study hung round with texts for thought. From the cedar to the hyssop, from the soaring eagle down to the chirping grasshopper, from the blue expanse of heaven to a drop of dew, all things are full of teaching, and when the eye is divinely opened, that teaching flashes upon the mind far more vividly than from written books. 
our little rooms are neither so healthy, so suggestive, so agreeable, or so inspiring as the fields. Let us count nothing common or unclean, but feel that all created things point to their Maker, and the field will at once be hallowed. Very admirable was the season. The season of sunset, as it draws a veil over the day, befits that repose of the soul when earth-born cares yield to the joys of heavenly communion. The glory of the setting sun excites our wonder, and the solemnity of approaching night awakens our awe. If the business of this day will permit it, it will be well, dear reader, if you can spare an hour to walk in the field at eventide, but if not, the Lord is in the town too, and will meet with thee in thy chamber or in the crowded street. Let thy heart go forth to meet him. Evening, August 15 And I will give you an heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26 A heart of flesh is known by its tenderness concerning sin. To have indulged a foul imagination, or to have allowed a wild desire to tarry even for a moment, is quite enough to make a heart of flesh grieve before the Lord. The heart of stone calls a great iniquity nothing, but not so the heart of flesh. If to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove, and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. The heart of flesh is tender of God's will. My Lord will be will is a great blusterer, and it is hard to subject him to God's will. But when the heart of flesh is given, the will quivers like an aspen leaf in every breath of heaven, and bows like an osier in every breeze of God's spirit. The natural will is cold, hard iron, which is not to be hammered into form, but the renewed will, like molten metal, is soon moulded by the hand of grace. In the fleshy heart there is a tenderness of the affections. The hard heart does not love the Redeemer, but the renewed heart burns with affection towards Him. The hard heart is selfish and coldly demands, Why should I weep for sin? Why should I love the Lord? But the heart of flesh says, Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. Help me to love Thee more. Many are the privileges of this renewed heart. Tis here the Spirit dwells, tis here that Jesus rests. It is fitted to receive every spiritual blessing, and every blessing comes to it. It is prepared to yield every heavenly fruit to the honor and praise of God, and therefore the Lord delights in it. A tender heart is the best defense against sin, and the best preparation for heaven. A renewed heart stands on its watchtower looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Have you this heart of flesh? Morning, August 16. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Psalm 29, 2. God's glory is the result of his nature and acts. He is glorious in his character, for there is such a store of everything that is holy and good and lovely in God that he must be glorious. The actions which flow from his character are also glorious, but while he intends that they should manifest to his creatures his goodness and mercy and justice, he is equally concerned that the glory associated with them should be given only to himself. Nor is there aught in ourselves in which we may glory. For who maketh us to differ from another? 
and what have we that we did not receive from the god of all grace then how careful ought we be to walk humbly before the lord the moment we glorify ourselves since there is room for one glory only in the universe we set ourselves up as rivals to the most high shall the insect of an hour glorify itself against the sun which warmed it into life shall the potsherd exalt itself above the man who fashioned it upon the wheel shall the dust of the desert strive with the whirlwind or the drops of the ocean struggle with the tempest give unto the lord all ye righteous give unto the lord glory and strength give unto him the honour that is due unto his name yet it is perhaps one of the hardest struggles of the christian life to learn this sentence not unto us not unto us but unto thy name be glory it is a lesson which god is ever teaching us and teaching us sometimes by most painful discipline let a christian begin to boast i can do all things without adding through christ which strengtheneth me and before long he will have to groan i can do nothing and bemoan himself in the dust when we do anything for the lord and he is pleased to accept of our doings let us lay our crown at his feet and exclaim not i but the grace of god which was with me evening august sixteen ourselves also which have the firstfruits of the spirit romans eight twenty three present possession is declared at this present moment we have the firstfruits of the spirit we have repentance that gem of the first water faith that timeless pearl hope the heavenly emerald and love the glorious ruby we are already made new creatures in christ jesus by the effectual working of god the holy ghost this is called the first fruit because it comes first as the wave sheaf was the first of the harvest so the spiritual life and all the graces which adorn that life are the first operations of the spirit of god in our souls the first fruits were the pledge of the harvest as soon as the israelite had plucked the first handful of ripe ears he looked forward with glad anticipation to the time when the wain should creak beneath the sheaves so brethren when god gives us things which are pure lovely and of good report as the work of the holy spirit these are to us the prognostics of the coming glory the first fruits were always holy to the lord and our new nature with all its powers is a consecrated thing the new life is not ours that we should ascribe its excellence to our merit it is christ's image and creation and is ordained for his glory but the first fruits were not the harvest and the works of the spirit in us at this moment are not the consummation the perfection is yet to come we must not boast that we have attained and so reckon the wave sheaf to be all the produce of the year we must hunger and thirst after righteousness and pant for the day of full redemption dear reader this evening open your mouth wide and god will fill it let the boon in present possession excite in you a sacred avarice for more grace groan within yourself for higher degrees of consecration and your lord will grant them to you for he is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or even think morning august seventeen the mercy of god psalm fifty two eight 
meditate a little on this mercy of the Lord. It is tender mercy. With gentle, loving touch, he healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. He is as gracious in the manner of his mercy as in the matter of it. It is great mercy. There is nothing little in God. His mercy is like himself, it is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners, after great lengths of time, and then gives great favors and great privileges, and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. It is undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be, for deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There is no right on the sinner's part to the kind consideration of the Most High. Had the rebel been doomed at once to eternal fire, he would have richly merited the doom, and if delivered from wrath, sovereign love alone has found a cause, for there was none in the sinner himself. It is rich mercy. Some things are great, but have little efficacy in them, but this mercy is a cordial to your drooping spirits, a golden ointment to your bleeding wounds, a heavenly bandage to your broken bones, a royal chariot for your weary feet, a bosom of love for your trembling heart. It is manifold mercy. As Bunyan says, all the flowers in God's garden are double. There is no single mercy. You may think you have but one mercy, but you will find it to be a whole cluster of mercies. It is abounding mercy. Millions have received it, yet far from its being exhausted, it is as fresh, as full, and as free as ever. It is unfailing mercy. It will never leave thee. If mercy be thy friend, mercy will be with thee in temptation to keep thee from yielding, with thee in trouble to prevent thee from sinking, with thee living to be the light and life of thy countenance, and with thee dying to be the joy of thy soul when earthly comfort is ebbing fast. Evening, August 17. This sickness is not unto death. John 11.4 from our Lord's words we learn that there is a limit to sickness. Here is an unto within which its ultimate end is restrained, and beyond which it cannot go. Lazarus might pass through death, but death was not to be the ultimatum of his sickness. In all sickness the Lord saith to the waves of pain, Hitherto shall ye go, but no further. His fixed purpose is not the destruction, but the instruction of his people. Wisdom hangs up the thermometer at the furnace mouth, and regulates the heat. 1. The limit is encouragingly comprehensive. The God of Providence has limited the time, manner, intensity, repetition, and effects of all our sicknesses. Each throb is decreed, each sleepless hour predestinated, each relapse ordained, each depression of spirit foreknown, and each sanctifying result eternally purposed. Nothing great or small escapes the ordaining hand of him who numbers the hairs of our head. 2. This limit is wisely adjusted to our strength, to the end designed, and to the grace apportioned. Affliction comes not at haphazard. The weight of every stroke of the rod is accurately measured. 
he who made no mistakes in balancing the clouds and meeting out the heavens, commits no errors in measuring out the ingredients which compose the medicine of souls. We cannot suffer too much or be relieved too late. 3. The limit is tenderly appointed. The knife of the heavenly surgeon never cuts deeper than is absolutely necessary. He doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. A mother's heart cries, Spare my child. But no mother is more compassionate than our gracious God. When we consider how hard-mouthed we are, it is a wonder that we are not driven with a sharper bit. The thought is full of consolation, that he who has fixed the bounds of our habitation has also fixed the bounds of our tribulation. Morning, August 18. Strangers are come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. Jeremiah 51, 51. In this account the faces of the Lord's people were covered with shame, for it was a terrible thing that men should intrude into the holy place reserved for the priests alone. Everywhere about us we see like cause for sorrow. How many ungodly men are now educating with the view of entering into the ministry? What a crying sin is that solemn lie by which our whole population is nominally comprehended in a national church. How fearful it is that ordinances should be pressed upon the unconverted, and that among the more enlightened churches of our land there should be such laxity of discipline. If the thousands who will read this portion shall all take this matter before the Lord Jesus this day, he will interfere and avert the evil which else will come upon his church. To adulterate the church is to pollute a well, to pour water upon fire, to sow a fertile field with stones. May we all have grace to maintain in our own proper way the purity of the church, as being an assembly of believers, and not a nation, an unsaved community of unconverted men. Our zeal must, however, begin at home. Let us examine ourselves as to our right to eat at the Lord's table. Let us see to it that we have on our wedding garment, lest we ourselves be intruders in the Lord's sanctuaries. Many are called, but few are chosen. The way is narrow, and the gate is straight. Oh, for grace to come to Jesus aright with the faith of God's elect! He who smote Uzzah for touching the ark is very jealous of his two ordinances. As a true believer I may approach them freely, as an alien I must not touch them lest I die. Heart-searching is the duty of all who are baptized or come to the Lord's table. Search me, O God, and know my way, try me and know my heart. Evening, August 18. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Mark 15.23. A golden truth is couched in the fact that the Saviour put the myrrhed wine-cup from his lips. On the heights of heaven the Son of God stood of old, and as he looked down upon our globe he measured the long descent to the utmost depths of human misery. He cast up the sum total of all the agonies which expiation would require, and abated not a jot. He solemnly determined that to offer a sufficient atoning sacrifice he must go the whole way, from the highest to the lowest, from the throne of highest glory to the cross of deepest woe. 
this murd cup with its soporific influence would have stayed him within a little of the utmost limit of misery therefore he refused it he would not stop short of all he had undertaken to suffer for his people ah how many of us have pined after reliefs to our grief which would have been injurious to us reader did you never pray for a discharge from hard service or suffering with a petulant and wilful eagerness providence has taken from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke say christian if it had been said if you so desire it that loved one of yours shall live but god will be dishonoured could you have put away the temptation and said thy will be done oh it is sweet to be able to say my lord if for other reasons i need not suffer yet if i can honour thee more by suffering and if the loss of my earthly all will bring thee glory then so let it be i refuse the comfort if it comes in the way of thine honour oh that we thus walked more in the footsteps of our lord cheerfully enduring trial for his sake promptly and willingly putting away the thought of self and comfort when it would interfere with our finishing the work which he has given us to do great grace is needed but great grace is provided end of august twelfth to eighteen